This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of distal biceps avulsion from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. A distal biceps avulsion injury may either be a complete distal biceps avulsion, partial distal biceps avulsion, or intersubstance muscle transection. With respect to a partial distal biceps avulsion, these tears occur primarily on the radial side of the tuberosity footprint. This is a testable point, so I'll say it again. Partial distal biceps tendon tears occur primarily on the radial side of the tuberosity footprint. With respect to an intersubstance muscle transection, this is seen when a rope is wrapped around the arm, for example, in the setting of a tug of war. With respect to epidemiology, as far as the incidence, distal biceps avulsions are rare, and distal biceps tendon ruptures represent about 10% of biceps ruptures. With respect to the demographics, Ruptures tend to occur in the dominant elbow in 86% of cases of men and 93% of patients in their 40s. Risk factors for distal biceps avulsions include anabolic steroids, smoking has a 7.5 times greater risk than non-smokers, hypovascularity, intrinsic degeneration, and mechanical impingement in the space available for the biceps tendon. With respect to the pathophysiology, The mechanism of distal biceps avulsions are excessive eccentric tension as the arm is forced from a flex to an extended position, otherwise known as a, quote, flexed elbow unacceptably challenged. Tears typically occur in the vascular watershed area or from mechanical attrition, that is, abrasion during pronosupination. As far as associated conditions, a distal biceps avulsion rarely can lead to symptoms of median nerve compression. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. The biceps tendon inserts on the radial tuberosity. The contents of the antecubital fossa from medial to lateral is the median nerve, which is the most medial structure, the brachial artery, the biceps tendon, and the radial nerve, which is the most lateral structure. The radial recurrent vessels lie superficial to the biceps tendon. Again, the radial recurrent vessels lie superficial to the biceps tendon. The distal biceps tendon possesses two distinct insertions. The short head attaches distally on the radial tuberosity and is a thin sliver. The origin is the coracoid process, and keep in mind that the short head is a better flexor. The long head attaches proximally on the radial tuberosity, which is an oval footprint. The origin is the superior lip of the glenoid and glenoid labrum. The long head of the biceps is a better supinator as the attachment is further from the axis of rotation. That is, it attaches to the apex of the radial tuberosity. Again, the long head of the biceps is a better supinator as the attachment is further from the axis of rotation as it attaches to the apex of the radial tuberosity. The long head of the biceps also has the independent function to prevent anterior, inferior, and superior translation of the humeral head against the proximal pull of the short head of the biceps. Another important anatomic structure to be aware of is the Lacertus fibrosis. So distal to the elbow crease, the tendon gives off from its medial side the Lacertus fibrosis, otherwise known as the bicipital aponeurosis or the biceps fascia. It originates from the distal short head of the biceps tendon, and the Lacertus passes obliquely across the cubital fossa, running distally and medially, helping to protect the underlying brachial artery and median nerve. It is continuous with the deep fascia of the flexor tendon origin and envelops the flexor muscle bellies. Keep in mind that it may be mistaken for an intact biceps tendon on clinical exam. With respect to the presentation of patients with distal biceps avulsions, patients may report a history of experiencing a painful pop as the elbow is eccentrically loaded from flexion to extension. With respect to symptoms, 
Patients may exhibit symptoms of weakness and pain, primarily in supination, and these are all hallmarks of the injury. Physical exam should include inspection and palpation, a motor exam, and certain provocative tests. With respect to inspection and palpation, there may be varying degrees of proximal retraction of the muscle belly, and you may find what's known as a reverse Popeye sign. On inspection and palpation, you may also notice change in the contour of the muscle proximally, medial ecchymosis, and a palpable defect is often appreciated. On motor exam, keep in mind that there may be loss of more supination than flexion strength. Again, there's loss of more supination than flexion strength. Specifically, you will have loss of 50% sustained supination strength, loss of 40% supination strength in general, and loss of 30% flexion strength. Provocative tests include the hook test, the Roulon bicep squeeze test, which is akin to the Thompson slash Simons test for Achilles rupture. With respect to the hook test, this is performed by asking the patient to actively flex the elbow to 90 degrees and to fully supinate the forearm. The examiner then uses the index finger to hook the lateral edge of the biceps tendon. With an intact slash partially torn tendon, the finger can be inserted one centimeter beneath the tendon. A false positive test can include a partial tear, an intact Lacertus fibrosis, and an underlying brachialis tendon. A false positive hook test can be seen with a partial tear, an intact Lacertus fibrosis, and the underlying brachialis tendon. The sensitivity and specificity of the hook test is 100%. With the Rulon bicep squeeze test, which again is akin to the Thompson's test for an Achilles rupture, the elbow is held in 60 to 80 degrees of flexion with the forearm slightly pronated. One hand stabilizes the elbow, while the other hand squeezes across the distal biceps muscle belly. A positive test is failure to observe supination of the patient's forearm or wrist. This has a sensitivity of approximately 96%. The challenge is to distinguish between a complete tear and a partial tear. The biceps tendon is absent in a complete rupture and palpable in a partial rupture. Otherwise, they have a very similar clinical picture. With respect to evaluation, radiographs are usually normal. However, occasionally, they will show a small fleck or avulsion of bone from the radial tuberosity. With an MRI, keep in mind that positioning in elbow flexion, shoulder abduction, and forearm supination increases sensitivity. Again, positioning in elbow flexion, shoulder abduction, and forearm supination increases sensitivity of discovering a distal biceps avulsion on MRI. It's important to distinguish between a complete tear versus partial tear, a muscle substance versus tendon tear, and degree of retraction on MRI. Treatment of a distal biceps avulsion can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes supportive treatment followed by physical therapy, and this is indicated in older, low-demand, or sedentary patients who are willing to sacrifice function. If the Lacertus fibrosis is intact, the functional deficits of biceps rupture may be minimized in a low-demand patient. With respect to outcomes of non-operative management, patients will lose 50% sustained supination strength, they will lose 40% general supination strength, they will lose 30% flexion strength, and will lose 15% of grip strength. Operative options include surgical repair of the tendon to the tuberosity. This is indicated in young, healthy patients who do not want to sacrifice function, partial tears that do not respond to non-operative management, and subacute slash chronic ruptures that may be treated successfully with direct repair without allograft. Keep in mind that in the setting of a subacute slash chronic rupture, you may need to hyperflex the elbow to achieve fixation. Again, you may need to hyperflex the elbow to achieve fixation in the setting of a subacute slash chronic rupture. Hyperflexion does not lead to loss of elbow range of motion or flexion contracture. 
Again, hyperflexion does not lead to loss of elbow range of motion or flexion contracture. With respect to timing, surgical treatment should occur within a few weeks from the date of injury. Further delay may preclude a straightforward primary repair, and a more extensile approach may be required in a chronic rupture to retrieve the retracted and scarred distal biceps tendon. Now, let's talk about some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail. We'll talk about an anterior single incision technique, a dual incision technique, and general distal biceps fixation techniques. So with respect to an anterior single incision technique, the single incision technique was developed to reduce the incidence of heterotopic ossification and synostosis, which is seen with the double incision technique. The anterior single incision technique involves a limited anticubital fossa incision and involves the interval between the brachioradialis and the pronator teres. This approach involves radial or lateral retraction of the brachioradialis and medial retraction of the pronator teres. The lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve is identified as it exits between the biceps and brachialis at the antecubital fossa. Make sure to protect the PIN by limiting forceful lateral retraction and maintaining supination. Complications to be aware of include injury to the lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve, which is the most common. Keep in mind that there are more lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve injuries with the anterior single incision technique than with the two incision approach. Other complications include radial nerve or PIN injuries, which are the most severe. This risk has decreased with new tendon fixation techniques that require less dissection in the antecubital fossa. Other complications include synostosis and resulting loss of pronation slash supination. And to avoid this, make sure to avoid exposing the periosteum of the ulna and avoiding dissection between the radius and the ulna. Heterotopic ossification is also a potential complication, however, is less common with the anterior single incision technique than with the two incision technique. Postoperatively, you will immobilize these patients in 110 degrees of flexion and moderate supination. Moving on to a dual incision technique, this was developed to avoid injury to the radial nerve slash posterior interosseous nerve. The dual incision technique uses a smaller anterior incision over the antecubital fossa and a second posterolateral elbow incision. The posterior interval is between the ECU and the EDC. Again, the posterior interval is between the ECU and the EDC. Make sure to avoid exposing the ulna and do not use the interval between the ECU slash anconius, which is Coker's interval, or the anconius and the ulna. Anterior dissection is the same as in a single incision technique that we just described. After the biceps is identified, the radial tuberosity is palpated and a blunt curved hemostat is placed in the interosseous space along the medial border of the tuberosity and palpated on the dorsal proximal forearm. The hemostat pierces the anconius and tents the skin, indicating where the posterolateral incision should be made. With respect to complications, lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve injury is the most common. Again, lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve injury is most common with the dual incision technique. Synostosis and heterotopic ossification is more common with the two incision technique than a single incision technique. Now let's talk about distal biceps fixation techniques. We'll talk about bone tunnels, suture anchors, interosseous screw fixation, suspensory cortical button, as well as comparison between these distal biceps fixation techniques. We'll start with a comparison of these different techniques. With respect to tolerances, with the elbow at 90 degrees and no load, the distal biceps sustains 50 newtons of force. With the elbow at 90 degrees and with one kilogram of load, the distal biceps sustains 112 newtons of force. 
the force to rupture equals 200 newtons. And keep in mind that repair needs to be able to withstand at least 50 newtons. As far as comparison, a suture button is able to withstand 400 newtons of force. A suture anchor is able to withstand 380 newtons of force. A bone tunnel is able to withstand 310 newtons of force. And an interference screw is able to withstand 230 newtons of force. As far as a combination technique, a suture button plus an interference screw is stronger than a single technique. Now let's talk about a bone tunnel. This is typically done with a two incision approach. The tuberosity is exposed and a guide pin is drilled through the center of the tuberosity. An acorn reamer is used to ream through the anterior cortex to recreate a slot of varying depth. Two or three two millimeter diameter holes are drilled one centimeter apart through the lateral far side of the radius. And number two sutures sewn to the distal tendon are passed and tied across the bone bridge. With suture anchors, a single incision approach is used. The radial tuberosity is debrided to prepare for bone to tendon healing. Two suture anchors are inserted into the biceps tuberosity, one distal and one proximal. The distal anchor is tied first to bring the tendon out to length. Next, the sutures of the proximal anchor are tied, and this repair sequence maximizes tendon to bone contact and surface area. With respect to an intraosseous screw fixation, a single incision approach is also used for this option. This is similar to the bone tunnel technique, except the number two suture, which is whip-stitched through the tendon, is passed through a bioabsorbable tenodesis group. Finally, with respect to a suspensory cortical button, a single incision approach is used. The tendon end is whip-stitched with the suture ends placed into two central holes of the button. And similar to the bone tunnel technique, an acorn reamer is used to ream through the anterior cortex after exposing the tuberosity. A smaller hole is then drilled through the far cortex to allow the button to be passed across the far cortex. The button is flipped to lie on the far cortex, and the suture ends are tensioned, otherwise known as a tension slide, to bring the tendon into the tunnel. Finally, let's talk about some surgical complications, specifically a lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve injury, radial nerve slash PIN injury or radial sensory nerve injury, heterotopic ossification, synostosis, proximal radius fracture, or suture rupture if the bone tunnel method is used. So with respect to a lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve injury, this is the most common complication overall, and this is typically the result of over-aggressive retraction. This is more common with a single incision technique and is usually resolved in three to six months. A radial nerve slash PIN injury or radial sensory nerve injury is more common in a single incision than a two incision technique. It also usually resolves in three to six months. Heterotopic ossification may occur if the interosseous membrane and ulnar periosteum are disrupted, and there is also an increased risk with the two incision technique. A proximal radius fracture may be a complication from drilling large tunnels. That's all for this review about distal biceps avulsions. Hopefully that was helpful. Because this is a relatively lengthy topic, look out for a separate episode completely dedicated to questions about distal biceps avulsions. And hopefully this episode will have prepared you for that question review session. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.